If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Conspiranormal. Welcome to Conspiranormal, a little short segment here that we're doing in this episode. Uh, we're going to talk to Red Pill Junkie real quick. We haven't had Red Pill on in a while, but uh, we're going to talk about the Daily Grail. And Red Pill, I understand that you guys are doing kind of like a fundraiser right now for the for this uh, wonderful website that you write for. To be back here at Conspiranormal, talking to you. Always great to have you here. Thanks. And, and yeah, uh, basically, Greg Taylor, who is the owner and director of, of the Daily Grail. Uh, and the Daily Grail is a website that has been around the interweb since before many of you guys were even born. I mean, we're talking 90s here, guys. I mean, when, when you know, where visual browsers were still novel and there was no Google. Yahoo was like the king of the hill. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I assume you're talking to the audience there when you say before we were born. Although I do, yeah, I I do, appreciate, minute, I, yeah, I do uh, appreciate you thinking that we're a lot younger than. Well, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know your demographics. You know? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of your, your listeners will remember things like FTP and, and, and those kinds of Eudora. Or those kinds of newsletters, right? The CompuServe, uh, AOL, and all that jazz. You know? All those great GeoCities paranormal sites. Well, that was, I guess, by the time that the web, uh, the, the World Wide Web was beginning to become uh, like, I don't want to say hijacked, but yeah, controlled by commercial interests, because we have to remember. 
for many, many years, the internet was like this uh, experiment that was run between nonprofit uh, organizations and, and mainly universities, right? So you wanna, you, you wanna, if you wanted to have like an internet address, you had to like apply, you know, and you had to go to a university or a college or something and get uh, an address there. And that's what I did in the, in the, in the 90s when I was still in college and I uh, learned about this thing called the World Wide Web and I learned about this thing that allowed you to connect to computers all around the world. And obviously the first thing that I did with this new power at my fingertips was uh, connecting uh, to people who were interested in UFOs. And Greg Taylor was one of those people. I mean, I, I didn't know Greg back then, but he was one of those guys who uh, like realized the wonderful potential of the, of the web for connected people who were interested in very peculiar or particular uh, interests, interests that are, most, are still frowned upon by the mainstream. But with the web, like people were able to connect and, and, and join in, 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 in bulletin board systems and forums and exchange ideas from very interesting ideas to completely wacko ideas. I mean, John Lear, remember when he was started to send his old Creole uh, papers and this idea about, uh, you know, the secret pact between uh, the United States government and, 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 the, and the grace and all that jazz. Yeah. And, I mean, like, we really built this city on, not on rock and roll, but on conspiracy <laughs> theories and, and UFO war. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. nice. So, so you guys are doing like a fundraiser, fundraiser for, the for the site? Well, yes. I mean, what we, what we realized is... Uh, that in order to keep this ball rolling, uh, we need to make the, the web page more profitable. And in order to do that, the only thing that we can figure out is to get more Patreon subscribers. Yeah. So that's what that's what we're aiming. We're aiming to try to get more uh, people who visit the, the the website because we get like tens of uh, thousands of, of visits uh, a day. You know, and 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 even though we're uh, uh, like a small website by some metrics, we are uh, a website that is followed and is read regularly by some of the heavy hitters in the field. You know, I don't want to name drop here, but uh, there are people that pe- that your listeners will whose their names they will recognize instantly. And they are the kind of people that when they want to get their, their, their news, they go and visit the Daily Grail. Mm-hmm. And, and where else? Where else? Okay, we have this like uh, street cred, if you will, but we haven't really done anything without, with it. Like we're like uh, still trying to r- remain independent. We're still trying to bring wonderful content and we hate We've always hated the idea of putting a paywall, you know, behind uh, our article. We always wanted to say, okay, we we want to give our content for free, 
but unfortunately, you, you guys know how it is. You know, we know the feeling. We, we there are very few alternatives to, to try to make a, a, a buck out of the web if you don't uh, put a paywall on, on your content. One is obviously you want to try to maybe uh, put ads on your on your website and. Uh, either you you make your website a total eyesore, you know, like every every scroll down every three paragraphs, like oh ah, every other two paragraphs ah, and by the end of the of of of, of your article, there's like uh, two or three more pages of of uh, of uh, billboards and whatever ads advertising, and that's not definitely what we want to do. Uh, so. Right now, our, our idea is, yeah, we're going to try to survive by, by getting more Patreon subscribers on board. And we figured if, if 10 or 5,000 of the people we regularly get on the Daily Grail uh, supported us by just giving us $1 a month, that will be uh, for us because we are a, a very small team. You know, basically right now we're like just... Uh, Two of us, like Greg and I, are like the, the main contributors, and there probably we also have guests and other guys who chime in. But if we have like five thousand people giving us like just one dollar a month, that will be enough for to keep us going. And we are trying to find ways to uh, make it worth their while to our subscribers, to our subscribers, not just like oh, you know, depending on their on their benevolence. We're also giving them some perks and some gifts. Like, for example, uh, we organized a raffle last last week, or it was no, actually, it was this week. We're no, actually, sorry, um, this last week we organized a raffle in, in which we gave away a signed copy of Passport to Magoni. And obviously, wow. it's a signed copy nice. by Jacques Vallée. Yeah, right. You know? And by the way, the Daily Grail is going to release the, uh, like an, an, an what is called an, an anniversary edition of Passport to Magonia, because I think it's going to be like the 40th anniversary since the, the, the book was released or something, something to that effect. And obviously, uh, Jacques Vallée uh, is 100% on board, uh, behind this, you know, and, and we're looking forward to uh, uh, releasing that. And we already released a new book by our friend Adam Gorightly. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. You got you guys are actually releasing that book. Yes, Saucers, yeah. Saucers yeah. Spooks, and Cooks. Uh, what, if, what, what if was it? UFO Disinformation in the Age of Aquarius. So basically, it's all these ideas about how people, since the... 70s were like expecting the UFO truth to finally be revealed and how they thought that first that the government was uh, stopping it and then how the government was going to support it and then is go- going back to no, now they're actually against it and it's all these merry-go-round that pe- the younger audience in, in, in the UFO world are probably not cognizant to it. So there is this uh, uh, crackpot historian called Adam Gorightly, who, who uh, is getting a look into all those histories and try, trying to like 
give these uh, chronicles to the younger audience, or not so younger audience. I think people, you know, in our age will, will get something out, out of this book too. And yeah, we just released this book. And, and I think that uh, one of the things we want to do is uh, give away free copies to, to, to supporters. So what I'm getting is we're trying to find ways to make it worth their while to our supporters, like giving these kind of gifts, like uh, hard copy gifts. Also, we're, going, we're thinking about other idea, like maybe uh, not just ask me anything sessions with uh, Greg and I on, on Zoom, like you guys, but also with, you know, someone like Graham Hancock. You know, like, and it's not like we have already arranged something with Ram. Um, I'm trying to not like speak uh, beforehand, but that is the kind of things that we are trying to see how we will be able to bring really exciting content aside from the content we are already providing on the Daily Braille. Excellent, cool. Yeah, use use that access. When did you first uh, start start writing for the Grail? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, so I started, uh, I found the daily grid in a very kind of serendipitous kind of way, as it's often the case cool. in our community. Like, I think it was around 2006 or 2007. No, I think it was 2007. I was uh, a fan of uh, uh, a science column written by Alan Boyle on MSNBC. You know, I used to read that, uh, that uh, page uh, like every day. And I realized that Alan Boyle, unlike many science writers or most science writers, he, uh, he was very open-minded with regards to things like UFOs and alternative thinking. So he provided links to the Daily Grail on his column. So from there, I managed to find the Grail, and once I found it, I I thought, okay, this is what I've been looking for all along. You, you know? found the Grail, like you said. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. I actually found it. Just literally, right? Yeah, like Parsifal or or, or Galahad. <laughs> uh, this what back then was this wonderful community of people who will stand days or weeks like discussing all sorts of topics you know that you you will find threads that were pages and pages long uh the 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 members also have their own blog that uh, greg gave away for free on, on, on his server and i became a member there and and i loved it you know i like uh, i i used to spend every uh, free hour that I used to have on, on, on my uh, day job and also after hours because I used to spend uh, a lot of lo long nights like doing things like uh, working on computer rendering something like that so that gives you ample time to go and check other things while the computer is working and, and uh, after that and after becoming a, a member Greg Taylor uh, contacted me out of the blue and, and uh, proposed to me that uh, asked me if I was interested in joining the team and becoming a news administrator. And at first I was like, <gasps> no, I was very hesitant. Uh, I, I didn't feel uh, ready for that. My English back in those days was 
totally atrocious. Not only the, the speaking English you, you are hearing right now, but also my written English wasn't uh, that sophisticated. So I didn't feel I had the right tools for it. Uh, but uh, Greg reassured me nonetheless and think, no, no, I think you will be great. You already have what it takes. And well, I, wanted, I, want you, I don't want to put any pressure on you. Think about it. Uh, for a couple of weeks or months, whatever it takes, and get back to me. So by then, it was the end of the year. Uh, I went to, not to Cancun, like Ted Cruz, I went to, actually, I went <laughs> Thank you for ke- keeping it timely. Exactly. <laughs> I went to Puerto Vallarta with my, my parents and my, and, my, and my sisters and my, and my brother-in-law. And I thought, you know, what the hell? Why, why not? Let's give it a shot. And uh, really, in hindsight, was like one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life because then I was like introduced to this like wonderful world of like-minded people, you know, not, not just the members of the Daily Grail, but people outside of the Daily Grail. I started to, to get acquainted with people like Greg Bishop, or people like Micah Hanks. And from then, I then traveled to the Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis in 2012. Yep. You know, so I became, I started to interact with, with people in this community, not only uh, by a computer, but also, uh, you know, face-to-face, starting to travel abroad. And, you know, sometimes I... I uh, I have regretted a lot, a lot of decisions in, in my life has, and, and, and the way that my life has turned wasn't obviously, like many of us, wasn't what I expected it to be. Uh, but uh, definitely joining the Paranormal 14 community of becoming an active member from a, a passive uh, consumer of content to an active producer of content like I said, was one of the best decisions in my life. Uh, I haven't regretted it since. And it's, it's exciting, you know, and, and being part of the Daily Grill, which, like I said, is one of the, uh, not only one of the long, longest running webs, paranormal websites out there, but also one of the, where the, one of the most respected because we really try to take a very uh, thoughtful, very uh, rational, middle way road when it comes to paranormal things we're not we're not like hardcore skeptics that uh, you know deny things a priori or but neither are we uh you know people who just put put out any kind of garbage you know just for the clicks you know like uh, clickbaiting stuff that turns out to be absolute nonsense we're trying to really cater to a to a thoughtful audience you know, people who like to ask questions, who are open-minded, but not so open-minded, like their brains will fall out of their skulls. Yes, and we appreciate that about you and the Daily Grail itself. Rep Hill, uh, thank you so much for joining us and coming on and telling us about this. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people, if they want to become a patron for the, the Daily Grail, where do they need to go? Thank you. And well, obviously, they have to go to the Daily Grail, www.dailygrail.com. There they'll find, they'll, I'm sure they'll find, easily find links to uh, the, the, the Patreon page of the Daily Grail. 
I think there are also we also accept uh, donations via PayPal. It's also uh, acceptable. People are not willing to you know like subscribe regularly to the daily to to Patreon. They just want to give like one-off donations via uh, PayPal. That's fine too. And we also we also encourage people to check our our catalog of of books that are available through Amazon. Right, like I, like we like we said, saucers, books, and cooks, which was just released. Uh, please uh, uh, wait for the uh, new edition of Passport to Magonia. I'll also take a look at the other. Uh, we also have other wonderful uh, books that I think, unfortunately, are not going to be available anymore, like the Dark Lore Anthology, which you know w- was like. A, a group of essays that were written by, by many different collaborators like Rick Bishop. And I think Adam Gorightly also was there. Uh, who else? Mike Jay. Uh, nah, I'm drawing a blank here, but th- there was a lot of great, uh, of great content on, on those essays. And there are also, you know, like a, a great, uh, I don't know, rep- reservoir of uh, wonderful content. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's a really good resource, guys, and curation is uh, more important than ever now. Absolutely. Number one spot to go to for latest paranormal news, as far as I'm concerned. Thank All you. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Red Pill. Uh, guys, we will be back to It's Paranormal. Alright guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. We hope you guys enjoyed our little Mardi Gras episode that we did last week. Hopefully gave you a, a little preview of what we do in the Mystic Crew. Yes, yes. And we have actually a member of the Mystic Crew with us right now. Uh, one of our listeners, patrons, and past guests of the show, Christopher Ernst. Hello everybody, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I mean, if everybody could see you right now, you're like in like sepia black and white. It's really, I am. This is my black and it's, it's white. It's like you're the elephant man or something. Like, I don't know. I am. I am a human being. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's on Amazon Prime. I'm thinking about watching that sometime. I've probably have not seen that movie and uh, I might've seen it when I was a kid and it incredibly freaked me out because, you know, it's scary. That and the other uh, uh, odd uh, uh, David Lynch film, The Straight Story, which is about a guy who drives uh, a tractor across the country to fi- to meet his long lost brother. And there's like no weird stuff in it at all. I think we found a topic for our uh, Patreon segment after the show, Lynch. I think. Yeah, we, we can maybe talk about that. Yeah, David, maybe do a little grab bag Patreon segment or something afterwards. But what we're going to talk about tonight is kind of the uh, new religious movements. And Chris, this kind of started because you had mentioned uh, a religious movement that you grew up in. And Serfiel is going to talk a little bit about uh, something that he grew up in as well. And just like a general discussion about like these kind of like new religious movements, uh, you know, like cult is probably really a pejorative term. I, I mean, I kind of think of a cult as being something that, that, you know, has a negative connotation, you know, things like, 
Jan- uh, People's Temple, Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, these type of, you know, where like people are actually really kind of um, exploited, honestly. Uh, we talked to um, Naomi at the end of 2019 about uh, Christian cult that she was in, but we're going to talk about something like kind of, I guess the more positive side of some of this stuff. And I may talk about some, some more negative things later, but uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Welcome back. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about Meher Baba. Certainly. Um, I mean, I could kind of talk about this, you know, forever. It's interesting because I, um, my interest in uh, the, the Fortean and, and paranormal and parapolitical and weird world um uh, there are a lot of sort of intersections that uh, as an adult, I have come to find in sort of re-examining the stuff that I, I grew up with. Um, and so I've, I've been kind of like itching to talk within the um, weird community about this, because I think there's some interesting stuff in the same way that, you know, uh, Serfiel and I were talking about this earlier, that maybe a figure like uh, P.B. Randolph or, um, you know, there are various other figures that maybe are marginal in terms of talking about like, uh, uh, like the esoteric world and spirituality and the occult um, uh, since theosophy. And I do think that Meher Baba, which is the name of this um, Indian Sufi Vedic Zoroastrian mystic that my parents followed, um, he kind of fits in there. Uh, And I guess to give a little bit of an overview, um, he, uh, uh, so there's this guy, um, uh, (laughs) he was born in 1894 um, and he died in uh, 1969. uh, And he was born, his name was Merwan Sharyar Irani. And he was uh, a Zoroastrian living in India. Uh, so he was an Irani. That's the name for the sort of the, um, uh, the, the uh, what would it be the ethnic group um, in India. And uh, his father, his father was a Zoroastrian mystic. Um, and they sort of just lived normal lives, like merchant class lives um, uh, until uh, Merwan was, uh, I think he was 19. And um, he had this, re- this peak um, experience, this religious experience, spiritual experience, uh, where he was kissed on the uh, forehead by this reputable um, Muslim saint, this woman, Hazrat Babajan, uh, who if you, know, you do any research in sort of Indian saints, you'll find you know, a lot of work on her, her uh, writings on her. Um, and he essentially, uh, well, according to him, he uh, realized, you know, uh, the full totality, you know, nirvana, the blowing out, full, full gnosis. Um, and from then on, uh, he essentially had this, you know, um, he series of, of uh, you know, mystical experiences where, you know, um, uh, he didn't like eat for a year and he was sort of wandering around in this fugue state and apparently like, you know, um, uh, uh, his parents couldn't rouse him. And then eventually he ended up like wandering and coming across these other saints. Um, uh, And he sort of started to regain a little bit of his senses. And eventually what happened basically is that he contacted these several different saints um, that were in um, uh, India at the time that are all uh, pretty well recognized. Like you can find, you know, work and writings on them. The, the, the most, famous of whom uh, uh, beyond Hazrat Babajan was probably this guy named uh, Sai Baba of Shirdi, who a lot of people know he was a a Muslim saint in India. And uh, he apparently had, you know, these very um, 
uh, uh, distinct miracle, you know, occult powers, cities, as it were called, where he could remove his arms and legs. It's being uh, called a Gauss-like uh, yogi. And uh, he could uh, take his intestines out and clean them. All this weird stuff that if you know anything about yogi and uh, lore, it's uh, very normal, these spiritual practices. We could get into that in a whole other conversation. Take his intestines out and clean them. Yes, that is a big part of uh, apparently um, like advanced yogic uh, and uh, spiritual practice uh, in Southeast Asia and India. You do things like there are these all these accounts of saints and yogis who, in order to sort of purify themselves, they will remove their intestines and wash them. Um, yeah. I do not have any recorded evidence of this. This is completely new to me, Chris. Yeah. This is, <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's uh, if you look it's it up, interesting. there's it's, it's it is totally interesting, right? It's it's crazy, uh, huh. and that's part of that is apparently one of the um uh the outcomes of what is it called a city, which is a power that you attain as you you know uh become higher and higher on the sort of spiritual advancement level. But apparently, these cities are not anything; they're like byproducts of spiritual spiritual advancement and you shouldn't pay any attention to them so anyway Meher Baba he met these people he ended up becoming sort of being trained uh under the tutelage of Sai Baba's um protege who is this guy named uh Upasani Maharaj um and uh about when he was uh in his early 20s uh Meher Babi, he started um, getting this uh, following. Uh, his, his, you know, friends and family uh, felt that uh, he, he, they felt something around him, I guess. Um, and uh, he started taking on this, you know, these followers. And uh, when he was 25, he ended up taking a vow of silence and he never spoke for the entirety of the rest of his life um, uh, uh if for until 1969 um so for about i don't know what is it 40 years or something like that uh so anyway he had two basically as a mystic he had two like i'd say periods of prominence in the western world um the first being in the like 1920s and 30s when he essentially had um uh, uh contact through um the uk uh with like essentially occultists of the time, like one of the big people that brought him over there was Meredith Starr, who was involved with Crowley. And he was like a poet. And I think an editor at what was the name of like the Lucian press or the, whatever the, uh, it was the publishing company. I think that, yeah, that, that Crowley I think had started. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, essentially he spent a bunch of money to bring Meher Baba. Cause you know, there was all these, uh, this sort of orientalism people loved the mystic swamis and like you know yogis and um, that was a really big thing going on at that time particularly uh, you know I think in the sort of uh, uh, not in the wake but this was part of the theosophical you know um, uh, uprising of quasi spirituality within India and this sort of um, eastern uh, mysticism mystic occultism that was becoming popular um, so they brought Meher Baba over there and he ended up like uh, basically traveling the world multiple times. Um, uh, and he met people like, uh, you know, he went to Hollywood. Uh, he went to like uh, St. Francis of Assisi's cave. He was doing all this weird stuff. Um, and even though he didn't speak, he talked about uh, or he would 
basically use a, an alphabet board. So he had a board that looked like a keyboard and he would point to it and spell things out. And then later in his life, he used this form of sign language and he still communicated quite a bit. And there's like this voluminous amount of uh, texts of his teachings to different people. Uh, he even dictated a few books that are exist out there um, uh, that are published and you can all find them for free. If you go to the avatar Meher Baba trust site, they're all PDFs up there. Uh, so he had this, this initial sort of run when he was with the sort of the uh, occult revivalists and he ended up meeting all these people that were sort of like famous Hollywood folks. And uh, he ended up becoming involved with uh, Robbie and Martin, who was a, uh, uh, one of the um, the uh, the who's one of the people that was next in the lineage uh, um, of Inyat Khan. I know you had Professor Wham on recently talking yeah. about Sufism, uh, and so Meher Baba sort of had this. He essentially ended up uh, creating this new Sufi movement that called Sufism Reoriented uh, with Rabia Martin, who is this uh, um, uh, devotee of Inyat Khan or. or um, whatever you would call it, I guess it would be a devotee. It would be a, 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 a student or, or, or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, so then uh, during World War II, he kind of backed off a little bit. He didn't do as much Western sort of moving around. And he spent a lot of time. There's actually this big book documented by a British physician called The Wayfarers, where essentially Meher Baba went around India and he met with all of these um, uh people, men and women, both that were called musts, it's spelled M-A-S-T. And within uh, Indian spirituality, they are people that are uh, considered God mad, meaning that like you would usually see them and think they're sort of like homeless or mentally challenged people that are sort of living on the streets, beggars. But apparently, according to Meher Baba and some of the other people, these people were um, essentially stuck spiritually and uh, in fact had intense powers on the higher spiritual planes. And so Meher Baba, he went around and did a lot of this sort of mysterious work with them, which would essentially mean like he would go and visit them and sit with them for a while. And that was it. Uh, Meher Baba did a lot of isolated uh, work in solitude, a lot of stuff that... Um, uh, required where he would fast for like 40 days and then spend a hundred days in an isolated cave. So the stuff that's really like very similar to um, like occult, uh, um, like grimoire work uh, uh, and stuff like that. And there is a, you know, similar things in Indian uh, uh, occultism, such as like, there's this thing called the Chila Nashini, which is where you uh, sit for 40 days and 40 nights in a circle. And if you do that uh, without leaving it, um, you, uh, or, you know, eating or, or drinking, you attain certain powers. So um, he was doing a lot of this weird work. And then what happened in the sixties again, is that Meher Baba became sort of a, uh, he had like a resurgence in the like hippie sort of love guru kind of milieu, you know, uh, Maharishi, the Beatles were getting into it. Meher Baba became um, uh, popular again, uh, a much lesser degree, but you know, you can see there, he had a cover of Rolling Stone once that's because um, Pete Townsend of the who uh, became a devotee of his. And uh, you know, there's a poster of him in um I think Woodstock the movie, but beyond that, he really was uh, kind of relegated to being this love guru, like most of the others. Uh, so that's where my parents found out about him. And I was raised in um, uh, a household where I was essentially 
taught that this this person was an avatar of um, uh, the godhood in the same way that um, uh, Muhammad or Christ or Buddha or, um, you know, uh, uh, Rama or Zoroaster or Abraham all were. Uh, this was sort of the cosmology of Meher Baba is that there's this cyclical avatar that sort of comes back. Uh, and he did say he was that. I, I have no idea. I'm not going to make any claims about that. But um, uh, so I was raised uh, uh, by my family. You know, my parents uh, were interested. They This is how they met, actually, was because they're both were followers of this. And I was kind of um, uh, in the the inner circle as a little kid because they were sort of, you know, um, uh, on the ground floor, so to speak, in terms of Western followers. Like my uh, my uncle is pretty sort of quote unquote famous within the uh, Western Meher Baba community and my godfather, who's this guy uh, who now works, um, he's actually a, a, a Christian minister and uh, and a Baba lover, as they call themselves. Um, he was like, he lived with Bob, Meher Baba for a while. Um, and uh, so anyway, I got sort of exposed to a lot of the inner workings of it. I went to India a couple of times. I've been to oh, the wow. ashram in South Carolina many times, you know, uh, and I didn't really think of it that much, you know, um, even though the cosmology and everything around, you know, uh, Mayor Bob is very strange and, you know, interesting. And, and I say weird in the sense that it is um, anomalous uh, or it, it is uh, uh, in terms of sort of Western spirituality, it, it, it varies from that quite a bit. But um, uh, so when I ended up uh, sort of, I'm going to say, becoming an adult, but later in life, as I think many, you know, Christians or Muslims probably do if they were raised in a household and then kind of, you know, went away from it or just didn't think about it. It wasn't really something that they were invested in spiritually. They didn't follow it. They weren't part of the groups. And I'm not any of those things. But I did end up becoming very interested uh, in looking back at all of the Meher Baba material, because I started to see as, you know, my a sort of occult Fordian uh, uh, perspectives ended up broadening the older I got, the more research I saw, the wider the internet sort of opened up. Um, I saw that there were some interesting connections, um, you know, between uh, the life Meher Baba lived, the stuff that he did, the people that he met, the, you know, weird writings that he, he um, uh, put out and stuff like that, and the what I would call the sort of general occult, you know, um, uh, parapolitical, uh, mystical, um, post-theosophical world that we all kind of discuss in one way, shape or uh, form, you know, it'd be UFOs or, or something else. Um, and so I started researching it and I found that there was quite a bit that I think is interesting enough to kind of warrant looking at Meher Baba in the same way that somebody might look at, like I said, PB Randolph or, you know, uh, Gurdjieff or I don't know if people know the guy Daskalos, um, who was a Greek sort of saint that supposedly could do miracles, uh, you know, or Blavatsky. Um, uh, so it's, it gave me a pretty unique perspective, um, uh, not only on, I think, some things that people maybe haven't uh, necessarily looked at when it comes to like contemporary occult Fordiana, uh, but uh, my upbringing also gave me a very unique perspective in terms of, of uh, Sufism, uh, Vedanta, uh, like uh, Hinduism, particularly Aryavarta Vedanta, uh, which is a, a, a sort of the, one of the oldest forms of Vedic, um, uh, like pre-Hindu uh, 
spirituality, uh, Zoroastrianism, and even Christianity, because uh, there was a lot of like very frank, uh, you know, uh, talk within the Meher Baba literature and community about these sort of, they wouldn't even call them secrets, but this was just like, this was according to Meher Baba, the, uh, the, um, the, not hidden, but the, the garbled spiritual history of the world, as it were, that, you know, uh, was sort of, has been mistranslated in certain ways. Um, uh, uh, so it's a particular worldview. Uh, I, don't, I won't say that I, I'm not a believer or a devotee, but it does give me, um, I think, uh, sort of some int an interesting perspective. Uh, and I think that, I don't know, for anybody that is interested in sort of the spiritual, the, the intersection of spirituality and the occult in the 20th century, century, I definitely think that it's something that they might want to look more into. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess that, that, that's just a, that is a major overview. Um, yeah. it, it's hard because I feel like, you know, whereas if somebody were talking about a Christian, you know, sect that they were new religious movement that they were in, it would be really easy because most people have some sort of like at least tacit knowledge of like the base of Christianity. Whereas sure. I feel like I would have to start explaining this like giant cosmology in order for people to understand right. some of the specific. We could get into some of that, but I, I wanted to ask like the, the, the links to Western esotericism, what are some of those? And, and you've actually got this. Um, I don't know if you've got a link somewhere, but if you do, I'd like to link it to this episode. Um, oh yeah, I can do that. Yeah. I have a, a, a little, um, I think I had written this as a, uh, I had written this as an overview for a possible documentary treatment at one point, but it, oh, you know, because nice. I'm a filmmaker, but it never went anywhere. But yeah, I can put it up. It's just like a little, it's like an 11 page sort of overview of this. And I can certainly, I'll, I can, we can publish it as a little chat book. I'll put it up. Well, what was, what are some of those links to uh, Western, more like Western esotericism that uh, Meher Baba had? Yeah. And, and I guess it's, is it as much him but more kind of like the the belief system that surrounds him is more right i think the belief system that surrounds him and i think in particular like uh i i guess the the, the way to describe it is that it seems to me from looking at this like voluminous amount of it is essentially hagiographical material since it was all written by his devotees but uh a lot of it these people like became his devotees after the fact and the way that people acted as his devotees even is a little bit like it's not the same as you might be used to it wasn't like these people gave up all of their worldly belongings it was more like they were allowed to tag along with him if that makes any sense yeah. um uh because he really didn't live a, a ostentatious lifestyle he just spent most of his time doing really weird things and people followed him around um but some of the intersections with um you know i think western occultism um probably you know come from specifically this this idea that uh or specifically theosophy this idea that he uh had or that he put forth um wasn't actually an idea this is what you know he said was the truth is that uh, earth is the home to these five uh, perfect masters. And essentially what he's talking about is he's talking about uh, secret chiefs. It's the same thing. The Mahatmas 
uh, secret chiefs, um, uh, you know, call it what you will. Uh, and the, the, the people that I already named, those saints, um, you know, he, he went ahead and named them. He said these were the five, you know, perfect masters of the time prior to World War II. Um, uh, and in fact, he, you know, stated that Sai Baba of Shirdi was the, like, spirit you know the uh essentially the um uh the spiritual or occult um uh orchestrator of world war one that this was like a thing that he had to oversee um uh and that uh you know these five perfect masters are sort of leading um you know uh in the same way that the mahatmas or the secret chiefs would uh they are shepherding creation um can i put that in my lesson plan for tomorrow good so but uh, sai baba cause it was the instigator or the he was absolutely the instigator of, uh, of of World War One, and it's funny, you know, if anybody knows this guy Paul Weston, he's a kind of uh, interesting uh, occultist uh, and yeah. speaker. Yeah, yeah, out of and he talks a lot about um, the area around Stonehenge and Glastonbury, and he's probably the only other person that I know that is, you know, he he did this. Uh, he had an interesting talk about. Uh, Indian Babas and their uh, interaction with World War II and essentially making these, you know, um, uh, uh, these assertions that there was this, you know, sort of this secret spiritual war going on. And I know people have talked about that in terms of like Crowley and stuff like that, but he's talking about something different, which is more along the lines of the Sai Baba of Shirdi, you know, <laughs> was in charge of World War One, uh, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, beyond that sort of uh, the fact that Meher Baba was sort of like talking about this, even though he didn't support theosophy, he said theosophy got it wrong, you know, got some things right, but the whole thing wrong. Um, you know, uh, he was a big proponent of this. And this was, you know, the way in which he said the world worked. And there's, you know, the perfect masters control creation through this hierarchy of uh, what are essentially angels, archangels, fairies, jinn, and other sort of spiritually advanced corporeal and non-corporeal beings, plus these uh, various agents that are uh, uh, essentially witting and unwitting humans that are being controlled by subtle means. Uh, and the Bob, Meher Baba people don't talk about this a lot. Like, this is not something that if you were to go to one of their meetings or go to the, uh, the, the spiritual retreat that's in South Carolina, Carolina, you know, pe most people would be like, huh? Because the majority of the way people sort of engage with Meher Baba these days, at least in the Westerners that I know, it's very much this sort of lovey-dovey hippie thing. It's like, it's all love, man. Just love Meher Baba. Love, love, love. And certainly there was a big part of what the dude said that was, I guess, focused on bhakti yoga, which is essentially the yoga of devotion to God. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of this other stuff in there that, um, so some of the other things where he was, um, uh, you know, sort of interacting with Western occultism, um, uh, you know, beyond visiting Hollywood and sort of getting in with people like Mary Pickford or Douglas Fairbanks or Greta Garbo or, gosh, the guy who wrote Dracula, uh, the screenwriter, Gabriel Pascal was really? one of his followers. Yeah. yeah. Um, he supposedly met Gandhi uh, on a, a trip uh, across the, um, uh, the Atlantic and they spent some time talking. Uh, he um, ended up 
becoming the woman who ended up becoming sort of the leader of after Rabia Martin of the Sufi group. Um, she was uh, married to her name was Ivy Ducci, and she was married to the guy that was essentially running the American Ver, like uh, like he was the American uh, um, like ambassador to Aramco, uh, like the Arab you know oil company. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he was like so. Meher Baba was advising the wife of this guy, and like you know dinner parties at their house in D.C. and stuff like that. Mm. Um, he also had uh, you know, and I didn't realize this until recently. There is uh, in one of the books that you know, talks sort of uh, historically tracks his life. They uh, specifically record this incident of um, a individual uh, named uh, Dr. Vinod meeting Meher Baba and having some interactions with him. And this would be as far as I can tell, even though I can't find anybody to corroborate, this is the same person. This is Dr. Vinod that one year later after this meeting with Meher Baba, because all this stuff is dated in these books, uh, was the um, conduit for the nine in Puharik's okay. first round table uh, thing. And, he, you know, he was the medium. Yeah. He was the medium. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> as we know, like, <laughs> everything is connected to some degree. And I think that, you know, that is something that we can see, you know, I, I think it was Michael Hughes was talking about this on your last show. You know, you can play six degrees of separation with Britney Spears and, you know, um, the satanic cabal, and it's pretty easy to do that. So these connections that I see, it's quite possible that, you know, things are that the, I see the, that these connections are here because People are connected on the planet and it's smaller than we think. But uh, at least in if we're having conversations that are, you know, at least speculative about the weirdness of occult things happening in the 20th century and, you know, prior and after, um, it's something I notice. And, and yeah. it at least makes me, you know, kind of raise an eyebrow and say, hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much opportunity for political intrigue, even in just the promoting the idea that there's secret chiefs. I mean, even that has a lot of utility that was exploited by different actors. And we, of course, know about the, you know, the history of a lot of the largest West, Western esoteric groups and, and uh, the Crowley stuff and the, the OTO and, and the British Empire versus the Germans and then the theosophy in the British Empire in India. Uh, yeah, there's just there's definitely a lot of weird things going on. And I think, though, just sort of to go back to the idea of talking about being raised in a in a new religious movement uh, of sorts. I mean, I definitely think that that is a huge part of why I am interested in, you know, the the larger Fordian world, um, or at least it gives me a particular perspective that I think. Uh, makes it easier for me to engage with that, and I yeah, and, and it's not. I don't think I'm better or any. It's just it it ha it definitely has made it so that it has been a fairly seamless thing for me to kind of talk about it to the state to you know to 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 the degree that I think you know having a conversation with you know you guys here is not something that I would have been able to do you know uh, like talking about it this easily is not something that I've found with, with most people. Um, uh, um, and it has been hard, I think, to find, you know, uh, throughout my life, uh, I guess, people that I can talk to uh, 
about this and it not be about like, you know, it's, it's not that I'm a devotee of anything. It's simply that I just, you know, the, I, I accept, I fully accept the presence and the, um, uh, of weirdness in the world of phenomena in the world. I'm not saying I know what it is, but I guess I'm beyond the point of saying, of trying to figure out whether or not this stuff happens. And I'm already onto the conversation of like, why and what for, because you were already kind of primed to these ideas and almost took them for granted already. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. What was your religious upbringing like in this? Like, how did you, how did they create the context for you to, to understand this, uh, this movement, this cosmology? Well, uh, you know, there aren't any within the, quote unquote Meher Baba movement, which is essentially they call themselves Baba lovers. Uh if you talk to anybody. Maybe not in India. In India might be a little different because uh uh the sort of the Baba racket there, uh and if anybody doesn't know Baba simply means like father. It's like calling somebody padre kind of or it's an honorific more than that, like you would call a shaman that sort of uh too. But um there's kind of a, a racket in the same way that you might find in charismatic Christianity there uh, where there's like a million Babas, you make money doing it. You say that yeah. you're the reincarnation of a saint. Um, and so uh, it might be very different if you're raised that in there. And it probably was very different for people that were raised in Sufism reoriented, which was the sort of Sufi offshoot of this. And I have heard of some sort of abuse stories coming from there, but for me, at least um, it really was in the majority of the quote unquote Baba lovers out there, there's no dogma. So you're not told to do anything. There are no holidays. You're not supposed to do anything. There are no observances. You're not supposed to do anything. The only thing that, I mean, there really is nothing that is said by either Meher Baba or anybody else that you need to do. Um, except for, and this is sort of like, it's not like there are commandments, is the idea of simply love love God. And I know that it sounds pretty corny, but that is really if I were to go to what I think the basis of most, maybe it was just my family, but most Western Bible lovers, kids that were raised in that environment would say that it was pretty much about this idea of, well, first off, you were taught that uh, everybody is God. Um, we are all, uh, and this gets a little bit into sort of the cosmology, is that essentially we are living in God. This is God. Existence is God. Everything, every, the totality of creation that we can't understand, that is God. And that what we are experiencing is essentially um, God in its totality uh, going through the process of knowing itself, Um, and that, so we are a fragmented, we are fragmented souls that are all in fact, part of the oversoul, which is God. And that we are on a journey to sort of go to a journey that is creating, uh, separateness. And then from that separateness will again come unity and, uh, we will retain the knowledge of full consciousness, uh, when we do that. And when we realize we are God again. So, uh, and apparently, you know, according to Meher Baba and his followers, he was just the most recent person, you know, where this happened to, he was the, the vessel that was ripe for the totality of the universe to, to uh, show itself. Uh, and this happens every 700 to 1400 years and at smaller intervals in between then. Um, uh, so, yeah, 
we were essentially taught that everything is God, love everything, try to be nice to people, try to be compassionate to people. Um, uh, and that, and you can find, you can find this corroborated in the quote unquote teachings of Meher Baba that, um, you know, it is better to live, you know, a life of uh, kindness and uh, sort of, you know, humanist principles and not be a religious or pious person than it is to be a falsely religious or pious person and not live by those principles. So all in all, it was pretty good in terms of that kind of base moral structure that was given to me. Um, how did I learn about everything? Well, yeah. a lot of it had to just do with the fact that I was being taught this stuff um, uh, conversationally. I mean, probably the fact that I was homeschooled had part of the fact it had to do a little bit with being like around my parents more and hearing part of it. Um, but uh, I think the things that I was interested in as a kid, and I wasn't homeschooled for religious purposes. It was more for the fact that my mom had been a Montessori school teacher and just hated the public school system um, where we were, like we were in Georgia and she really didn't like it. Uh, so I was homeschooled. Um, and one of the things that I got really into myself was uh, Greek myths and Norse myths and uh, uh, essentially occult and supernatural stuff too. And it really, I, I think because of that, it was sort of easy to talk about the uh, the sort of supernatural aspects of the occult cosmology of Meher Baba because it kind of like tied right in there. So, you know, if I got interested in, you know, Greek myths and Hercules, I also ended up, you know, uh, my parents would get me the book, you know, the Upanishads or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Vedic texts or something like that. And I even read some of the Meher Baba stuff too, but most of that is just anecdotes of, you know, people that were uh, living with him. Um, so a lot of it came from them simply telling me about it. Uh, I was also absorbed it by being around a lot of, um, they would have like essentially study groups. They'd be, so, there'd be like salons. So they would have other people that consider themselves Baba lovers around and they would talk about stuff. Um, uh, and I picked up stuff just, you know, being a kid hearing that uh, I was taken a few times, several times when I was a kid, in fact, many times uh, um, uh, to the uh, ashram or spiritual retreat, which is in South Carolina, which is still open and anybody can go to it. Well, can't go to it now because of COVID, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's like right in the middle of Myrtle beach. There's this several acre swath of pristine beachfront forest. That is a spiritual retreat that you can go to in Myrtle beach. Um, and being there, right. I picked up a lot because they would have like, you know, they'd have talks and people would be there. And, you know, that's where I met some of the famous when I was little, some of the famous like Pete Townsend would be there and God, I don't know. There's some guy, I think he was on 30 something. What was the name of the actor? Timothy Busfield. Like, you know, there'd be like certain celebrities there that were involved. And I don't know. So I picked stuff up like that. And then, you know, I got, I went to India a couple of times when I was a teenager, um, uh, you know, when I was old enough sort of to, to go um, to the ashram there. And uh, I learned about stuff there, just kind of absorbing it, being around it. I mean, I did end up reading stuff, I think when I was in my teens, but yeah, then when I got to college, it just sort of like went out one year. It wasn't like I made a conscious decision to become an apostate or anything, but it was, it was you know. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of picking it up by osmosis. And I did a lot of reading when I was a kid. And um, then, uh, I, I mean, I really did have to go back when I was in as an adult 
in the internet age and essentially reread everything in order mm -hmm. to sort of pick up this, these connections. Cause it was all really nebulous, you know, in my mind, I think at the point when I started making uh, uh, these connections and I was like, Oh, I should go back and read this stuff. And now it's all available online too. It wasn't before like you, a lot of these books are, are really difficult to come by, but now you can find them as a PDF. I got to ask what the experience was like with uh, other kids who may not have been, you know, part of that community having to explain that or did people treat you weird or oh, yeah. tell you you were in a cult or things like that? All of the above. I mean, it was certainly, you know, not only was I homeschooled, but I was also a super, you know, I mean, this, this was not something that most people uh, uh, understood. And I had a lot of friends too that, well, I mean, you know, actually most, most of my friends ended or the ones that I ended up becoming friends with were pretty cool about it. And so were their parents. And some of them yeah. were, I think, pretty deeply religious. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was definitely a weird outcast and my parents had pictures of this guy all over the house. You know, he looks like Frank Zappa. Uh, it's pretty weird. And people will be like, who the <laughs> hell is that? Um, uh, is that Frank Zappa, dude? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I'm somebody was like that. And um, uh, I mean, my dad did also like Zappa, but you know, uh, yeah. So it, I definitely got, I got a lot of, of, of crap for it, I think. And, you know, my mother was uh, a little bit of an outcast in her family because her family is a, like a really like serious old Irish Catholic Boston family. Um, they, they were not into it. Uh, uh, my, my, my father's family was a little bit more uh, I think open to it simply because my uncle, uh, my father's um, older brother, he uh, he's a, a, a an intellectual professor. Uh, he's actually sort of the the um, I think he is the Western authority on uh, ancient Sufism and Islam. Uh, okay. And he's you know professor. He, he teaches um, at the University of North Carolina. And so my father's family is a little bit more kind of like cool with it because I think my uncle presented it in a bit more of a uh, intellectual way. But my mother's family. She was the baby of the family and she was essentially like a, a weird hippie, you know, uh, and they, they weren't particularly cool with it. I want to go back a little bit to talk about this, the ascended master idea. Cause this was when I read this article that you sent, I mean, this, this really fascinates me. This idea that Mayor Baba called them sustainers of the universe. Yeah. And it's almost like you have this idea of like these these people that just look like indigents. Yeah. You know, these holy men. Yeah. But like they're essentially controlling reality. So now I got to think about like if I drive past a bum, like, you know, pushing a shopping cart, is that guy controlling reality? Is he controlling my reality right now? Like, like really, it kind of makes you think about that. But it's that's an incredibly fascinating concept. And when I looked at looked up this picture of uh, Sai Baba, that she said that, you know, he manipulated World War One. you know, well, I mean, nobody could see this, but you guys could see it. I mean, that just looks like a guy sitting in the street corner. Yeah, no, he were you know? all of these saints, like all of the perfect masters that I, well, I'm sorry, I take that back. Not all of them. Uh, some of them like uh, uh, so you had and it's weird because it's kind of this either or so you have somebody like Sai Baba of Shirdi who he he really was like these people live as home they're essentially homeless they are homeless and they are they subsist on whatever people give them they live in right. caves um, right. but then for instance one of those guys Na uh, Narayan Maharaj uh, he he 
I lived in this ostentatious marble palace and sat on a throne made of solid silver. Um, so like, ah. and I think for me, at least when I start to see that, honestly, I start to think trickster <laughs> is what I think. I start to think like, even though I know that's making a really long stretch to sort of the UFO, I consider all of this kind of the same phenomena. And so I start thinking about like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense that if you're going to have these, I mean, again, I'm not, this is all speculation, but yeah. if you're going to have these ascended masters that are essentially controlling the, you know, uh, the creation, then they're either going to be like, yeah, this homeless guy on the street or this guy that sits in a silver throne and never leaves it. Like, right. you know, like what the hell is either of those? So it is very interesting. And um, uh, essentially it, so, so, what the cosmological, the way at least Mayor Baba stated that this exists, and uh, also Upansi, uh, Upsani Maharaj, his, his sort of um, uh, his teacher, is that, uh, yeah, you, uh, each soul, you and I, we all have the capability, like we could easily become perfect masters. It just depends on sort of like how long we've been going through the temporal cycle of this. And uh, Mayor Baba very much, you know, uh, 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 he supports and puts forth versions of the, the Vedic idea of the Yuga cycle and of say like the, uh, the, the breath of Brahma, Mahapralaya, which is this idea of like, uh, essentially the universe having cycles like big bangs are cycles like big bang then I, I don't know there doesn't go enough into sort of like the physics of it for me to make a comparison but essentially there is this universe that that you know um, proceeds and then recedes and the way in which it's called in in sort of Vedic, Vedic cosmology is the breath of Brahma Brahma being everything which is how I think which is how I think scientists conceive of it now that there's going to be a big crunch leading to a big bang, bang, the universe expands and contracts and then the big crunch. And then another, you know, it's like, and so what's so special about hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas. Hero bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Was part of this process, which is apparently is the process of the universe regaining consciousness of itself there are certain fragments uh that um you know uh have have been going through the cycle long enough to have reached this point of becoming perfect masters and so apparently these perfect masters when one dies like another one pops up like that so like you know if uh when sai baba of shirdi died another one comes along and that they're constantly here and they are yeah guiding um the creation 
from essentially these spiritual levels. And that has a lot to do with this idea that um, is a Eastern sort of idea that we've come across before, I think, in different things of the gross world, like the subtle world and the mental world. And that's specifically how Mayor Baba talks about it. He says that there are three worlds that are all part of this sort of illusion of Maya that is the mechanism by which uh, God, totality of God realizes itself. Uh, and that uh, most of the action is going on on the subtle and mental planes, which are essentially the other world spirit realm. And that these are um, actually, these. this is what is the, the gross world that we exist in, the sort of physical phenomenal world is essentially the epiphenomenon of all this other stuff that this is like, we're, we're at the farthest reaches. And then you have to kind of go back in in order to get to the, um, uh, like the, the, the point, like the, the true spiritual point. So all of these perfect masters, yeah, they come across as being kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. Homeless guys are just these strange folks that, uh, you know, exist mainly apparently in the East, I, I guess, at this point in time. I don't know if that was different at another point in time, according to uh, all of this, but um, uh, yeah, this apparently is still going on right now. <laughs> also the whole thing about madness as well. And being what you describe as God mad and like this, this whole idea that, um, well, I mean, we could have somebody that's schizophrenic and we would say that that person has a mental illness and they do, but then you take them to a more traditional society and they're considered almost shaman in a way. And that seems almost like this is what that, what this is that, you know, like it's, it's a different conception of what mental illness really is. I definitely think so. And it's really interesting to read this book, the wayfarers, um, uh, which is, you can find it free. And it was written by this British physician who essentially followed Meher Baba around India for several years while he was going to visit all these God mad people. Um, and just from like a, a, as a piece of anthropology, it's interesting. He ended up becoming his devotee later as most people ended up being, which is a weird thing in and of itself. I, I find it actually, especially weird. The thing that I find the most weird about Meher Baba is that I cannot find anything scandalous. Like I can find some stuff that he, that was like said that's dated, you know, like using he pronouns or something like that, or, you know, referring to, uh, uh, I don't know, um, talking to somebody uh, in the 1920s in India about sex and saying, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, uh, uh, like don't have a lot of sex. I don't know, these things that are very innocuous, but in the, in the same way that I would expect, like, I don't know, Rajneesh, Osho, you know, Wild Wild Country, or, you know, uh, you find out later that somebody was screwing all of their people, or, you know, they secretly had, you know, um, I don't know, uh, all this money or something like that. And I, I mean, I, I, I would love it if somebody could come up with some scandalous stuff, because that would certainly make me feel a little bit more comfortable and like, oh, yeah, I know what this is. This, this is recognizable, but I can't find anything. And I find that really weird. Um, which leads to me to think that either this guy was nuts or he actually had something was going on, you know, um, uh, if he, he was involved with these other people that people thought were saints, maybe, I don't know, he was tapped into something. His behavior was certainly strange enough. Like he, again, he spent most of his time like fasting 
and living in a box mm. and, and not speaking and not speaking. What, what, what was the influence of Zoroastrianism? Well, I mean, think I think Zoroastrianism, um, I don't think there is anything specific in terms of the, uh, like cosmology of Zoroastrianism that came through. Uh, I mean, I'm from, if you were again, and I, I feel like kind of, uh, uh, going back to, you know, simply what this guy Meher Baba stated. And again, when I say he said this, he never said anything. He pointed to some letters and people wrote it down. So take, take with that what you will in terms of translating it. But, um, so what he said about Zoroastrianism was essentially that like, uh, it was so long ago that most of what are the teachings of Zoroastrian, what you would find in the uh, Avesta, uh, uh, um, and is it's 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 basically like it, none of it's really true anymore, uh, or it's not accurate. It's been so broken down and reused by priest classes as you know certain ways of uh, um, you know social control and stuff like that. Much in kind the same way, like a way. cargo cold at this point. Exactly, or in the same way that some might argue that the Bible has been, you know, that there there's some stuff in there that's true, but then there's a lot of you know human yeah. stuff that's in there. And you know, I mean, he said the same thing about like you know, Mayor Baba. He's very clear that you know, Christ was the same. Christ Christ was real. Uh, um, uh, Buddha was real. Muhammad was real, and these were all the same phenomenon happening. That unique blend of of traditions and the way he created this cosmology and spirituality was, was it really the product of a pre partition India or is that still, it was still get characters like that. Would that, I don't know if you do anymore, quite honestly. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I only know the post partition India, but it certainly is interesting to note that like the majority, I think of, uh, at least if you look back at sort of the hagiography of Meher Baba, most of the stuff that he was doing that was really like weird occult work was pre-partition and post-partition. He essentially, he kind of like started to embody the stereotype, at least in the way that he engaged with the outside world of like a, you know, just an everyday normal guru, but he didn't, he actually didn't do a lot of interaction with people after world war two. And he also had uh, two very, very serious car accidents that left him um, uh, essentially like handicapped and in uh, constant pain, uh, I think from like the fifties on. Uh, so he didn't do much after that. And he, yeah. he said these, he said these, these experiences were similar to what every, you know, avatar has to go through, uh, in the same way that Jesus had to, you know, uh, experience the suffering on the cross. Um, and, uh, you know, Muhammad had to suffer being stoned that these were, you know, these are things that in order to, uh, what does it take on the suffering of the universe, that the avatar has to do this. It's, you know, I mean, that, that to me is a very, that's a very Christian thing. I mean, at least this idea of uh, like the dying for your sins, taking on mm-hmm. the suffering for your sins, that, that very, at least when I read it, that to me, I was like, Oh, this is a very you know Christian. Uh, and it's interesting how much of this weird blend yeah. came out of it. And I don't know. I mean, he went to college, the guy Mer- before he became mayor, Baba, he dropped out, but you know, he was a smart guy and he, he worked as like a, a a theater. He was like a a, a theater troop trooper for a while and a poet. And he worked at like a a toddy shop where they make those like bong <laughs> cannabis drinks. And you know he he had a 
pretty kind of normal life, but he was, he was a smart guy, you know, and I don't know if this is the kind of thing that like he picked up a lot of this at school or where this came from, or if it was taught to him by, you know, these saintly spiritual masters that he worked with or whether it was, you know, divine intervention or who knows. Well, so many of those, those early missions to the West of uh, Islamic and, and Hinduism variants, uh, they're really, many of them are not concerned with dogma. And he he gives this real practical occultism kind of in the lens of of what people are already getting into in the West. And I just wonder if like that's because they had such a kind of religiously tolerant uh, world that that was coming from. And if like post partition, you know, now we have so much Hindu nationalism and different, you know, more fundamentalist Islam and Pakistan, if if like anything like that would really happen anymore because things are a lot more. Oh yeah. No, I don't know if it would either. I mean, it's interesting. Like my uncle, actually, he was, he, he, he lived in Pakistan as like a a Fulbright, like, you know, an academic trip for Mm -hmm. a while studying. And this was like, you know, this is back in the eighties. And I remember it was not that it's not, was not, um, uh, uh, it was even then it was a lot easier, you know, to sort of, uh, uh, be there. I think that um, now, yeah, I don't think this could happen at all. I think Modi and um, the way it, 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 the way that India has become kind of in many ways like the U.S. and many other places exceedingly nationalistic. Not that it wasn't always, but the impression that I get, even though there were conflicts between Hindus and Muslims, and there always have been, that there was. Um, uh, you know, and maybe this is incorrect from reading the books of the time, that there was at least a little bit more of this sort of underpinning of spiritual unity that was there, and that people that were deeply spiritual rose above that, and that it, you know, um, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I know that it certainly has gotten worse, particularly in terms of anti-Muslim um, uh, sentiment. Um, uh, it definitely is worse than at least even when I went there. And that was in like the nineties, I think. Yeah. Let me ask you about, um, Pete Townsend, you know, made the connection today that that's Baba, the it's, he's the Baba from Baba O'Reilly. And he actually, um, I'd remember this, that he, like that synthesizer part at the beginning that, that he did, he wanted to do something. Wikipedia says he wanted to input the vital signs of personality of Meher Baba into a synthesizer, which would then generate <laughs> music based on that data. data. Wow. All right. Yeah. No, I, I, and so he put in, it, it's funny cause he took that sound um, uh, that's in Baba O'Reilly and Baba means father essentially. So you get the sort of joke of like the f- songs called father O'Reilly. Um, Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, is that that you know the the lick that we know that's that the arpeggiated synthesizer sound? He took the technology that this um uh, that this uh, experimental musician Terry Riley was using. Um. Uh. And if you listen to any Terry Riley stuff from that same time, you'll be like, oh, this is Bob O'Reilly. This is totally Bob O'Reilly. So he took that and then he put in yeah he put in the numbers. I think it was. I want to say it was like Mayor Baba's birthday and the day he died or something like that, which is, uh, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was some numbers corresponding to Mayor Baba. And yeah, that was the tune that you got out of it. Um, uh, and 
Pete Townsend was um, he was very much like if you look back on a lot of his work, including Tommy, uh, most of it is influenced by uh, his sort of his deep mystical engagement with Meher Baba. He never met Meher Baba, but he had um, a really sort of intense uh, uh, um, uh, mentor mentee relationship with this woman named uh, Delia Dillion, who was one of Meher Baba's uh, like early uh, followers during the sort of Western occultism phase of the twenties and thirties. And she was an old woman at the time in London. And she was kind of like his, you know, his Swami at the time, I think Mayor Baba died. He died. He died at this point. Uh, this was after 69 and like Pete Townsend, like he, he had all this money. He was going to make this, he was going to do this huge, like uh spiritual center that he was going to uh, like build and canary war for something like that. Uh, and it all fell apart. Um, uh, and it's something that, you know, I met him a few times when I was a little kid. I don't remember it. It was just, you know, I was like a little kid and he was one of the adults there. Um, it's not something he talks about a lot, but you know, I mean, I've seen him a few times around. He was uh, at the, like the ashrams and stuff. And he has like, Meher Baba devotional songs that he's written that the people amongst the crowd know about and stuff like that. Uh, but a lot of his, a lot of his work actually is uh, I'd say up through the eighties, maybe even to the nineties has really distinct mystical roots in the cosmology of Meher Baba. Yeah. Mm. And Tommy is uh, well, he's, you know, deaf, dumb and blind kid, but emphasis on him being mute. Yep, exactly. Right. And it is yeah. the idea like Tommy's supposed to represent the uh like the avatar or the unrealized uh Christ. I'm gonna have to listen to that again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, interesting. interesting. I mean, there's so much, like we could probably do several shows on it because there's so many different um uh like aspects to it. I think um uh, I'll just give a few of these sort of like key, these are some of the key sort of esoteric points that um, uh, I think are interesting and that, you know, people can chew on uh, if they want. And yeah, I, honestly, if people, this is one of those things that I would suggest people, if they're interested in it, if you go to, um, uh, I forget what the actual website is, but if you just search for Avatar Meher Baba Trust, um, there is, it's a trust, it's like a public, uh, you know, org trust based out of India, and they have an online library that has every single one of the writings that are for free in PDF form. Uh, and you can kind of look through that. I mean, there's so much information to go through. It's really tough. Uh, but here are a few things that I think are interesting to sort of whet people's appetites. Um, so very specifically twice, people asked Meher Baba about flying saucers. And on both instances, he was very recalcitrant to talk about them. Apparently, people said that if you asked him about flying saucers, he didn't like it and he didn't want you to ask them. Uh, but when he did uh, these two times that he answered people, um, uh, both were Westerners asking him. Um, and both times he said flying saucers are not from other planets. And that is all I'm going to say for now. Um, so take of that what you will. I mean, this is just coming from one guy. If you think he's nuts, it doesn't even matter. Um, Apparently, Earth is the closest planet to the point from which creation emerged from the sort of nebulous beyond uh, and that is closest to the spiritual spheres. And I think that's interesting because it really jibes with, um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Uh, he's been talking about these 
you had guys had him on recently, I think, uh, and he was talking about um, the uh, the movement of sort of the spiritual world and the physical world. Uh, oh, uh, Laird, Laird, uh, Laird Scranton, of course, yeah. yeah, which very much like it's very similar to what Laird Scranton is talking about. I mean, almost if not identical to it, uh, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, Laird uh, does a lot of study. He studied a lot on the yugas. That's kind of his thing too. So, and, and like a, like Buddhist cosmology and and all that as well. Yeah, uh, another good one is that the souls of snakes can only advance spiritually if they are killed by a human because apparently the serpent form is a karmic knot that cannot be undone unless killed by a human. Oh, uh, yeah. I, it's just <laughs> weird stuff. Uh, so kill moon, as many snakes as possible. Kill as many snakes as possible. And this is a weird thing. Like the dude would kill snakes. He wouldn't kill anything else, but he would kill snakes. Don't I, I seriously do not. Yeah, I do not understand it. Uh, the moon used to be like Earth. It used to be uh, uh, populated and that at some point our Earth will become like the moon. Mm. Um, the Earth is actually part of a trio of three interlinked planets that are, in fact, one world, one planet being full of super intelligent beings, one planet being uh, of somewhat intelligent, more advanced than us, and then our planet, which is a balance of uh, emotion and intelligence, and that these worlds interpenetrate. And that's all he, he said. It's very it's weird. It's one weird thing you can find. I can't find any more on it. Uh, but yeah, uh, apparently there are two other worlds and that we share suns. Um, so take of that what you will. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, you could, you could put some Fortiana stuff into that. Right. Um, ghosts are everywhere around us and most of them are the souls of suicides attempting to work out the leftover karma they never spent in life and that most spirit contacts are unfortunately just these souls, some of whom have been around for hundreds of years and are kind of nuts and have gained certain like abilities because of that. Um, uh, and that that's what a lot of, um, but at the same time, there are, uh, a hierarchy of spirits, uh, that exist in non-corporeal forms and forms that can, that can take on corporeal forms and that, uh, the fairy, the djinn, um, angels are all the same thing. Uh, and that, uh, that they are just these, these non-corporeal spirits that live in the subtle, uh, astral, you know, um, and, uh, spiritual worlds. Um, there are always 56 God-realized souls on Earth. Um, uh, it, the human form has been evolving for millions of years. After a billion years from now, humans will only be five inches high, um, but very smart. And that at the beginning of this cycle, humans were 14 foot feet tall and would live up to 300 years. When I read that part, I couldn't help but think about, the, uh, about how some people think the grays are us in the future. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, those are just some of them. It's, it's, there's, there's some interesting stuff, um, uh, in there. And a lot of it is, uh, you know, uh, I would say confuse some of it's confusing and contradictory, but I think, you know, uh, if people are out there and interested in like reading, reading works that, you know, engage with, uh, the spiritual with, with that engage both with spiritual and occult ideas, uh, particularly sort of in the milieu of, you know, Eastern, um, uh, spirituality and stuff like that. Uh, it's, 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 it's interesting. That's definitely interesting. Um, 
And there are a lot of like little pieces, I think, that could be picked apart even further and, you know, uh, more interesting stuff kind of pulled out of it. I think particularly from somebody, too, who's not like me, who doesn't come from like for me, at least I feel like I, I have at least a little bit of a blind spot just because some of it's so embedded from being young that I can't see things completely mm-hmm. objectively. And even though I'm not like a devotee or anything, I still feel like part of me wishes that, you know, uh, yeah, that some people that have no, like, z- like zero experience with this, uh, to take a look at it and see if there's anything they can come up, they can find. Did he have an idea of, um, a spiritual mission to the West that we needed uh, you know, things from the East that he was bringing. Did, did he have that kind of idea? Not specifically. It wasn't like a missionary thing. Uh, there were some things that I remember reading where he talks about um, how the West, particularly America uh, has a lot of sort of potential uh, spiritual energy. And he was talking about this in like the forties or maybe thirties. Mm-hmm. So, it's been a while since then uh, that he said, you know, sort of needed to be uh, that could either could go in several directions. Um, uh, uh, and that um, if, uh, yeah, so there was some special, there was some talk sort of about America specifically and at least the role that it had as being so powerful um, uh, having a particular role to play, but he didn't like, I guess, in a role to play in the global unfolding of things, because he was really talking about this as being like the crux of the Kali Yuga and that like, you know, World War One and World War Two, and the, you know, uh, everything we've seen since then is part of like, essentially the birthing pangs of what he called the new humanity, which was a very sort of uh, it's a treatise that he wrote, which is, is it really sounds like, honestly, like, uh, uh, like sort of fifties, um, uh, like new Christian, or at least you guys know more about this than I do, but from some of the stuff that I've read from sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, Christian, um, uh, I, I guess it would be like, progressive Christian philosophy from like the forties and fifties, very similar to that, this idea of the new humanity uh, that will be emerging. Um, uh, So yeah, nothing about like, yeah, nothing about the U S being saved or anything like that, but uh, definitely um, uh, it having a role to play. And there's some weird stuff. Like there's this one woman uh, who was a a really, uh, she was a very prominent Western follower of his, uh, one of his, as you call Mondali. Mondali means circle. And they're essentially his like Meher Baba's apostles. Um, uh, and there's this one woman who I met when I was a little kid. Uh, her name was Phyllis Frederick. And I, I think I'm, I'm going to talk about this a little bit on one of our, you know, one of the Zoom hangouts. But she was a really intense psychic. And she had a lot of these visions that uh, both before and after meeting Meher Baba and becoming his devotee that had to do with sort of uh, American um, uh, 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 or global apocalypse scenarios. Uh, she also had some visions too of Atlantis and a lot of these weird psychic things. But again, this, you're starting to get further and further away uh, from, um, uh, I guess, what you would call the gospel, even though there is none. Um, but like anything, I mean, any sort of new religious or spiritual movement, this is what you get. You have the person who started it, and then you have all the people that are starting to, you know, yeah, it's trickle down. 
So you said he didn't want to talk about flying saucers, but you said that there was a building that resembled a saucer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he didn't want to talk about flying saucers particularly, but I will say another thing that he did very specifically tell, had this very long treatise, in fact, about how there are intelligent, you know, uh, planets all over the galaxy. He said, I think there were 18,000, specifically said there were 18,000 planets with humans in this, with human-like beings in this galaxy, and that some are so intelligent that they can't communicate uh, through psychic means, um, uh, and that many of them are uh, reincarnating the souls of these aliens are reincarnating into the uh, into the into Earth uh, during this time. Um, so uh, I don't know what that means if you're going to take that and then sort of like you know have that weighed against flying saucers or not from other planets. Um, you know, it could go into the I think the way in which we talk about the you know the. ETH versus non-ETH theory and stuff like that. But uh, I'm sorry, you, your question was, he said no flying saucers, but what? Well, yeah, the, the, there's a building that you said. Building, yeah. So there is a building. And uh, when I link, uh, when I, I give you this thing that I, uh, the the little sort of um, booklet that I made, there's a picture of it. Uh, and the, um, the sect that is called Sufism Reoriented, that is located in Walnut Creek, uh, California, um, near Stephanie Quick. Stephanie and I have talked a little bit about this. Um, oh, is that the place that she's got a bunch of like synchronicities around, or she she kind of did like a, a tw- she did a, like a Twilight language thing of the area, pretty much. I think she might have done a Twilight language thing of the area, but yeah, it was I think because of talking to her that she sort of got like. Um, uh, uh, and I don't know, I, I don't want to take credit for it, but I think that she may have had more of a specific idea of what this place was after she and I had talked about this. Um, okay. But yeah, there's this, uh, um, that is what she's working on. And it's really interesting because uh, yeah, that building was built by uh, the Sufism reoriented crowd. It totally looks like uh, a spaceship or some like crazy, you know, uh, it's like a bunch of concentric circle bubbles, sacred geometry stuff. Uh, and it's in the middle of like a, a suburban neighborhood in uh, Walnut Creek. If you just people just Google Sufism reoriented, um, reoriented in Walnut Creek, you'll or you'll come up with it. I think there's an article called the uh, uh, the church that the Cheesecake Factory built because one of the biggest found like contributors and the guys who's part of that sect there is the founder of the Cheesecake Factory. And so it in fact was built with a lot of his money because that sect apparently does the whole, like, you know, you give all your money to the sect. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Huh. There's also, there's also in Meher Baba's tomb in India, which I have been in and I've had the special privilege of being able to go inside and clean it, which is the privilege that you get, which is actually a very interesting uh, experience. It's this dome ceiling. It's very small, very, very, uh, um, very austere, like uh, just this little brick room. Uh, uh, top of the dome ceiling, it does look like there, somebody painted, and I don't know, I mean, there, the person who painted this did it at his bequest, the flying saucer, or it looks like a flying saucer at the very top there, um, which I've always found to be very interesting. Yes, I do see a, uh, I'm looking at it on the map, uh, this Sufism reoriented temple, and there is a Lafayette Reservoir <laughs> Recreation Center nearby. Oh, is there? <laughs> I think she. I think she mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I. And that's Mount right. Mount Diablo as well. Yeah. 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 
there are a lot of interesting places. Um, uh, there's another place in California too. There's a mountain that he, uh, uh, there's a, a little ashram on there that he was, that's, I want to say, say it's near Ojai. Um, uh, yeah. Cool. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Sergio, you wanted to share some things about, uh, well, me and Chris have just been kind of talking about whether um, he was asking me uh, before we went on whether, um, you know, for me growing up in a kind of new religious movement, whether it predisposes you to mysticism and eventual interest in things like the paranormal and the occult. And I think it absolutely does. Um, I mean, I grew up in a, um, I spent my early childhood in the reorganized church of Latter-day Saints, which is kind of like a, a Mormonism light. Um, definitely all the, uh, not, not, a does not have all the strange things, uh, or so-called strange things that people usually associate with Mormonism is pretty much like at this point is like a, uh, regular Protestant denomination who, uh, has a couple extra books is usually how I'd explain it. Um, but instead of, whereas like with Chris, these uh, ideas of occultism and, and um, mysticism and cosmology were kind of normal to your childhood, uh, for me, these things like uh, the ideas around the mound builder mythos and pseudo history and pseudo archaeological stuff was really normalized. And I grew up around a lot of it. And so, you know, it's been really full circle getting back uh, into understanding that stuff from a historical context, um, because it was kind of just like a part of regular everyday life when I was a kid. I mean, we had like books around the house. Um, we had this L. Taylor Hansen book around the house that I just recently like rediscovered her Um you know, she was a big uh, uh, writer for amazing stories and stuff. And uh, she wrote a book called He Walked the Americas. She wasn't a Mormon, but that book was was pretty uh, influential in, in Mormonism and, and offshoots of that. I think they really liked it, especially because she was not a part of the church. Um, but I grew up hearing about, you know, people going on expeditions uh, to Mexico to try to prove these, the stuff from the Book of Mormon. And... Uh, but there was also like a um, a kind of living religion aspect to it uh, where, you know, like ideas that things like prophecy are still around that people are still uh, inspired. And um, also, I think it, it, it opened a lot of people to their own kind of speculation, which, you know, none of a lot of these things like these archaeological expeditions and stuff like that weren't sanctioned by you know, official church organizations, but it, the, with this template that was laid out by a lot of this really speculative stuff, people were able to, you know, go, th go their own directions with it. it. L. Taylor Hansen, that is the same person that wrote, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's called tribal memories of flying saucers. She wrote a lot of that yep. sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, know she, what was her stories? Right. 
I, I that's one of my that was one of my favorite um uh uh going back what so what was her uh interest in or what was the catalyst for her writing this book and sort of what was the uh her research based on do you know well i know that it's basically a it's a collection of all of the uh what's considered like the the white prophet uh mythologies that are supposedly you know you find across native america from from you know south america to to up here um it's a little convoluted because there's just so much history of post contact um native americans who have tried to um you know position their stories to put themselves into the christian cosmology um so there's a lot of a lot of convoluted stuff in it, but it's kind of a collection of all that. This book called He Walked the Americas uh, that was in my household has a lot of the pseudo-archaeological stuff, too, that we find later and like Rebirth of Pan and stuff. But but yeah, she she was supposedly in contact and had been in contact with a lot of Native Americans who had imparted these stories and mythologies on her. Uh, but like that what you're talking about in particular, I think it's written from it, it's supposedly like a, a native, native American, American speaking, speaking I, think. I think. Yeah. She did that a, a lot. I, I heard that she would like take on the guise of particular native Americans. Not that she, right. and I got, and maybe I'm wrong. You might know more in terms of research about her life, but I heard that she also was friend like, or at least claimed to be sort of involved with and friendly with, different native american cultures whether or not that's true i don't know right it's really it's really hard to tell um because like i said and and i grew up with um i grew up with some native americans who also believe this stuff so you know a lot of them were fitting themselves into these stories you know of course the the general story of the book of mormon is that um, there were these different is Israeli descended tribes in America, and then there was a war and between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and the 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 Nephites being the uh, more European light skinned, the the Lamanites being the the ancestors of current Native Americans, and that the Lamanites, of course, won and kicked out the Nephites, and by uh, Europeans coming to America, they are coming back to Zion. So it's pretty weird stuff. But um, the thing is, the sect that I spent my childhood in had, they were the result of the uh, the breaking up of Mormonism after Joseph Smith died. And when Brigham Young went out to Utah, a lot of these groups who stayed behind in Illinois, Iowa, in Missouri eventually came together under this banner, the reorganized church of Latter-day Saints following Joseph Smith's son, Joseph Smith, the third. And, um, some of the subsequent generations, uh, of leadership became very educated, uh, and encouraged education of the church members and built their own university. Uh, after which it became really hard to maintain a lot of the, the dogmas associated with Mormonism and to hide uh, a lot of the excesses of the early Mormon leadership. 
And so they kind of had this, uh, they're kind of having an identity crisis, um, but they still maintain those books, but there's no kind of, or these books from Joseph Smith, et cetera, but there's no kind of litmus test to it. And especially I think with my parents' generation in the seventies, um, less and less of them took this stuff literally, but some of the, the older generations still do, you know, believe in a lot of this stuff. So it was kind of strange for me. I asked my parents, well, is this, you know, is this real? And they're kind of like, ah, oh, well, probably not, but you know, blah, blah. It's just kind of a, a cultural thing, you know, that they stayed in because it's where their families were from. Eventually they, they fell out with it too. Um, but it was real interesting because I got kind of this, this weird history lesson being really young. I also grew up with a lot of Native Americans uh, and, and got to see a lot of really ancient preserved culture. Um, and so I kind of had this dichotomy and got to understand pretty early on the uh, how religions can be engineered pretty much. And so that, you know, that kind of... Uh, um, well, it gave me a lot of skepticism that I took with me for, for the rest of my life. It also, uh, there's a lot of strange elements to it. And, and the more I've come back to really researching the origins of Mormonism, which some stuff I shared with you guys of just, it's really, you know, came out for a while from so much academic work and researchers have really, you know, found out just how, um, much of an occultist Joseph Smith was and how he's such a product of his time. And he was really a treasure hunting magician of sorts. Um, and the mound builder mythos was an idea that was already out there and, um, created a religion. Um, you know, I don't think that necessarily means that he never, um, had any kind of extraordinary spiritual powers or anything like that. Cause he very well could have, I mean, just dictating something, uh, like that, I mean, is, is a feat in itself or, or some kind of real religious experience. Yeah. 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 But there's this, um, idea of the, uh, pious fraud that a lot of these people have come to feel about them. And there's a really big organized community now of people leaving Mormonism, but who still kind of maintain that, want to maintain the community. Um, but they're finding ways to support each other and explore this stuff online because really it's like a, I mean, I, I, I wasn't as much because we were, we were further removed from it. But, um, you know, for a lot of people, especially like the LDS people, it's, it is pretty much the, the closest thing to an ethnic group with cohesion of like Anglo-Americans really besides like the last remnants of the East coast wasps. I mean, it's like a people, you know? Yeah. Well, so wasn't, have- so wasn't the, the, is the, uh, the speculation that's being put out now, and this comes from a little bit from that, uh, uh, the interview that you would link for me to take a listen to, <laughs> is it that Joseph Smith, because of his father, and the fact that they were essentially working as treasure diggers or whatever the term for it is, uh, treasure finders that the, that at least this historian uh, was putting forth that his, you know, finding of the tablets and uh, Moroni, that that was in a sense that this is a tall tale that was being put out to sort of further the treasure hunting business. Um, well, 
I think what Daniel Vogel's really talking about, who's a historian, is that um, Joseph Smith got in trouble because officially it was against the law to be this this kind of treasure hunter. We're not talking about just going out and you know dowsing and thinking treasure somewhere. We're talking about people who are um, doing magic, and there's ideas of like. Uh, guardian spirits of the treasure that you have to read grimoires to communicate with because they'll they'll move the treasure on you and you have to kind of trap the treasure you have to say incantations you have to use stakes and like they I mean it was some pretty far out stuff which is where he talks about the he thinks the whole idea for for Moroni this angel of the golden tablets even comes from is that it's it's essentially a uh, a treasure guarding ghost yeah, and that an interest, interesting interesting thing about that before you kind of move on there Sir Fiel, is that the bell witch um that's a key part of that story is that she is making the bell children the bell sons try to find treasure and then when they don't find it, she laughs at them and all these type of things. So that's like very much in that story. Yeah. And it was like, a, I mean, treasure hunting of this sort was a, a fad that really gripped the whole country. And then the relic hunting came as well. Um, and that was all tied in with the mound builder mythos, of course. Uh, way before Joseph Smith, there were the ideas that uh, this this may be the that the Indians may be the ancient Israel parts of ancient Israelites and that this lost mound builder civilization, may be ancient Israelites, all these ideas were already around. And it seems like, yeah, with, with this treasure hunting aspect, he kind of just put it all in this gumbo pot. Uh, there was religious conflict in his family that he seems to have sought to resolve through creating this religion. Uh, his father was a Unitarian. His mother was a Presbyterian, I believe. Um, you know, this is burned over district. And um, they were destitute. I think they lost their farm. I mean, it was like back against the wall. He got in trouble and couldn't treasure hunt anymore. So it's like he didn't really have a lot of options. It's pretty much his only job he ever had <laughs> was treasure hunting. So, and they were, they were pretty destitute. And uh, he. You know, seems like he he pulled that together and and um, created something out of nothing. It's quite the American story, you know. No, no matter how much uh, how much everything was taken to excess, but but it's pretty wild that I I kind of came full circle to really understanding it through getting into um, you know understanding the occult and history and mound builder mythos and this 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 age of relic and treasure hunting kind of came around full circle, but back to like what we were first talking about like yeah absolutely i feel like being exposed to that stuff from such a young age really predisposed me to be interested in in all this kind of material and mysticism in general i wonder what the uh uh i think that it's interesting um and it's something that is important to talk about particularly given the uh i think the negative and rightfully so, the negative connotations, I think, that a lot of new religious movements or cults, I mean, I, I, there's a fine line. And I think I've known a mm-hmm. lot of people who have been, you know, um, uh, become part of certain organizations that are 
in a sense, you know, that put themselves across as spiritual, but do have some sort of predatory aspect uh, uh, to them. But at the same time, I do think that there are certain instances, you know, um, maybe mine, uh, maybe others, where there are people that were raised in these very alternative sort of spiritual um, areas that I think have uh, at least the um, unique perspective to sort of be so open to uh, Fordian phenomena that um, they can lend a unique angle um, because they've kind of like, there aren't some of those filters uh, that are just culturally kind of put, put, put there. Uh, and I found this from people that I think are not, uh, you know, that weren't necessarily raised in a new religious movement, but maybe were just raised by like weird, you know, hippie radical parents or radical mm -hmm. parents in general, you know, and it could be completely secular upbringing, um, but one that, you know, allows for this, um, you know, <laughs> for this, I guess, a uh, there is an embedded understanding that there that there is something greater out there. Um, and I do think that there's, it, it's too bad that, um, listen, I understand in many ways why religion and particularly uh, Judeo-Christian religion has been demonized and the way that, you know, uh, especially as Americans, it's kind of used as a political tool. But um, and even then for like, I think the science crowd that feel like somehow religion and spirituality is, you know, anti-science. Um, uh, yeah, I understand that, like, the guy who did the, you know, Creation Museum, um, uh, you know, he's a little nuts, like, I agree, but I do think that the value of spirituality is something that I would hope, even for those that are, you know, hardline skeptic nuts and bolts uh, Fordian enthusiasts, I think that it 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 adds something. It's something that if you don't have, that if you take it away as a component, I think that you are missing part of the picture, particularly if you're a miss, if you are into this as a mystery as solving the mystery, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think it makes perfect sense. It's just such a vital part of human existence and who we are. I mean, we have to have some kind of connection we feel that we we need to have some kind of connection to the divine. So, absolutely, and I think a lot. I, I I honestly think a lot of people who are interested in anomalous phenomena that that even if they're not thinking about it consciously, that's part of the reason why is that anomalous phenomena in many ways gives us this feeling that there's more out there, even if it starts as like a titillate titillating monster hunter ghost hunter let's let's hunt for him what you're doing is you're trying to find proof for yourself i think that there's more out there than what you see in front of you and to me like that's that's spirituality honestly like that's you know that's what people are doing is they're they're looking for that yeah and at, at these crossroads you know at at civilizational crisis we we need you know, we need we need something, and the total materialist viewpoint is, you know, obviously uh, is getting us, you know, just racing towards self destruction. Well, I think people get get involved with so many of these cults because they are seeking and they are looking for something. I mean, if you look at if you look at something like Nexium for example, I mean, they really poured on the whole like kind of human empowerment stuff on really thick. 
And so these people that were living kind of like these successful lives and, and being actresses or day traders or filmmakers or what, what have you, it's like they need, even they needed something to like fill their lives. And here comes this really a philosophy with this charismatic leader, you know, people are just, nobody ever asks like, why, you know, did you join a cult? I mean, they're, they're joining what they, it's something they believe in. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't start off negatively. Usually sometimes it degenerates into that. I mean, I honestly think you could say the same thing about, um, to a greater or lesser to a lesser degree about like, uh, I don't know the Gaia uh, or Gaia, you know, blue avian <laughs> Corey folks. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean, or at least, yeah. When the, the folks that, and again, no shade thrown at them, but like that f- go full hot, like whole hog into that and are like, y'all blue avians. That's it. You know, like exopolitics. I'm here. Like this is, this is it. This is the, uh, you know, this is the this is the new thing. This is the beginning of uh, uh, what is it? Five D five D reality. <laughs> There's a good segue. What do you think about the the future of new religious movements and what what issues do you think they're going to coalesce around? I mean, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I know a lot of people aren't particularly. Or I shouldn't say a lot of people. I, I know that there are some people that feel like. Uh, Diana Walsh Pasulka's American Cosmic and what she talks about in there is overplay, you know, not as important as a lot of people are making it out to be. And there's some people that think, you know, uh, it's very important. I think it's very interesting in the way that she talks about UFO, you know, um, uh, uh, UFO as a, a, a religion or the, at least bringing that into the conversation. Um, again, it's just the question that she's sort of posing there is, you know, what's happening and she uses the particular examples of these silicon valley guys but i i do think that at least the way i see it right now in terms of a new religious movements i can't imagine any one based around a single person that doesn't end up sort of crashing and burning because i feel like we're in uh at least the way that culture exists right now you can't like it's too hard for a person unless they really were some like legit saint or something like that to not end up being exposed as a very fallible human being as we all are. Um, uh, So I think that a lot of, I foresee at least a lot of the new religious movements going forward or what the equivalent of them is being sort of decentralized and having to do more with um, a concept like the blue. I mean, blue is probably a bad idea because you have some like you have some Bengali figures in there with you know Wilcock and 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 uh, uh, Corey Good, but uh, I think that it'll be more around an idea. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think QAnon's a pretty good example of it. I hate to yeah. say it, but I do think it is. And whether or not it's always going to be that kind of radical nuttiness that ends up being parapolitical i'm not sure but i think it's going to be decentralized and i think it's going to be based upon things that we don't that not that we don't quite get but it's not going to be like a person with a philosophy it's going to be based upon like a meme or an idea Mm -hmm. that's come to the that sort of gelled into something in our internet cultures yeah i see kind of this this new dark gnosticism um, I think, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of future in that, um, and it it's going to relate to a lot of these 
traditionalisms that are exploding as well. And I think ultimately what we're going to see is a lot of these a lot of these movements who are um, setting themselves up in opposition to a transhumanist or highly technological future. And if, if, you know, this dystopia is coming that we can also easily imagine, it's almost easy to, you know, sympathize and be like, wow, people are just really scared because absolutely nothing is going to be the same. Our whole conception of human life and, and work and everything is going to be changing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's something that really scares me. Um, I, I don't know what that's, what that dystopia is going to look like and what that opposition, uh, is going to look like too. And it could unite a lot of really scary, disparate elements. Uh, but I, I can absolutely see that coming. And I think I see, we see some of the, the initial formations of that right now in this new weird, like dark Gnosticism. And by dark Gnosticism, I think I understand which, I mean, you guys were talking a little bit about that maybe like last week with Michael. Yeah. I mean like both the, the Christian and the new age stuff kind of coming together in this view of, uh, evil world elites who are, in communication with dark forces who rule over us. And in, in reality, the more that these elites actually do become non-human, which is a real possibility. Um, you know, we don't know what that's really going to bring. And I think there's big philosophical questions about like what AI is and will be, um, you know, how do we fit that into our cosmology? Oh, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's, I see, I I don't know if it's going to be as, um, (laughs) I don't know if it's going to be as sort of mystical as much as like, I feel like that would end up sort of, not that this was a movie that I really was a huge fan of, but do you remember that movie Elysium with Mm -hmm. Matt Damon and like, who was it? Was it Glenn Close that was like Jodie Foster? Jodie Foster, right? Yeah. And it's essentially like it's just this I- increasing polarization of the techno elites and the rabble, and you know this technology that like I think is going to you know create a certain level of living. You're basically going to have two if not more sort of like realities going on talk about like your secret space program like the secret space program as far as i'm concerned is all the people that have so much money that they don't care they don't have to worry about any of the things that we worry about Mm -hmm. um and i think that probably you're right will get more and more uh these these more and more stark sort of differences as the technology uh that sort of in whatever shape it is. I don't necessarily think you're going to be able to transform, you know, to transfer your consciousness to a machine, but I certainly think that there's going to be more, um, you know, techno futurist advancements that are going to allow, you know, Peter Thiel to live to 200 with vampiric blood infusions or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, in the same way that say a, uh, you know, a peasant of some occupied country, um, you know, is getting bombed by a robot overhead. You know, I mean, he's, you know, if if he literally thinks that we are the devil, I mean, it's kind of, 
it's kind of justified. I mean, I just see that, you know, this stuff is going to get is going to get so weird, and those those class differences, uh, especially if you talk about like age, you know, it's already like that right now, especially with the pandemic. But you know, it's it's uh, I think it's going to open up a lot of possibilities, and uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of scary, but. You know the dystopia is scary as well, so I don't I don't really know which one I fear the most. I think it's all part of the same dystopia, honestly. <laughs> I think it's all part of. The- I mean, dystopia has crept up on us pretty fast. Like we're we're yeah. in it, and I didn't I didn't even yes. realize. Like, yeah, this is a big part of it. I mean, not, and I still have it, and I'm going to go to well, bed. And, you know. When these groups, I mean, we're talking about QAnon and everything. I mean, when these groups are basically you know like today i mean they started the the trial and they were talking about how the the impeachment trial and they were talking about you know trump uh tweeting and then they showed you know that he was tweeting something about pence and then all of a sudden they showed the timeline where like all of a sudden everybody out there in the crowd was saying get pence get pence well it's like you could just imagine the kind of like black mirror episode where everybody's algorithms are just going off all at once because they all love trump and of course they're all subscribed to him on twitter so they're all probably getting the same the same notification all at the same time and seeing that tweet and if not they all know when to look for it so it's kind of like it's just this it's almost like this vicious system that like feeds and then works against itself. And, and I think that's going to be compounded further when you have whole swaths of people. I mean, it's similar to the whole, like people who watch Fox news and people who don't, but you're going to have like the people who are strictly watching, you know, OANN or, you know, um, yeah, right. Guy T or guy. Yeah. Guy TV, OANN, you know, whatever Trump starts his new thing, all the OANN people go there and then, you know, you get the neoliberals, whatever they're, they're looking at the New York times and CNN and, or whatever. Um, And I mean, I think it's different grades of bullshit. Like as I remember Michael Hughes saying yesterday, like, yeah, you know, uh, Fox is a different grade of bullshit. New York times is still bullshit, but it's a different kind of bullshit and different amounts of bullshit in there. And then you also have very legitimate journalists that are just trying to be journalists in there too. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's gradients of bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it is, I think, gonna, you know, you're going to have, uh, information sort of spheres and there's going to be different, um, different realities like we are in now. I mean, I, I, and I think that it's just, a, it's an example of that. I mean, like, yeah, I, I, I don't really care about Biden as a person or a politician. I don't think he eats babies. Um, right. but some people really do. I mean, I'm in the sphere where I just think he's like kind of a crappy politician. And then there's the sphere of people that think he's a crappy politician that also eats babies. Yeah. And, and you know, that <laughs> there's, there's just a wide difference though, between that it's such, there's such a spectrum. Yeah. 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 And then there's maybe some people that think he's secretly what's, what's the evil version of the blue avian. They're the, I don't know, the large reptoid or something? I yeah, know. I guess. Well, they're always usually reptilians. Usually that they're they're the they're the bad guys. Yeah. Well, this has been an interesting discussion, guys. I think that uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna close out the show with you, Chris, and then I think we're gonna probably sit down and do a little Patreon episode about something. Um so Chris, tell everybody where they can find you and also your 
where they can find your films or is hill in the hole and corpse is it still up on prime yeah it's still up online uh if you go to either brightrectangle.com or the hill in the hole.com it'll take you to where you can watch uh we have a couple of films up on Amazon. You can also get Blu-rays and DVDs now for them and stuff like that. And uh, we're working on some other stuff that hopefully we'll have uh, some old stuff that we're remastering and then a new series on, uh, uh, for, uh, or at least a primer for a new series that we want to do on um, uh, 40 and 14 perspectives yeah. uh, that will hopefully get going even further once i can physically interview people not over zoom because i refuse to do a zoom a zoom documentary as cool as those can be sometimes not my thing yeah all right guys and and of course you can check out our patreon uh which we'll be recording a patreon episode here with uh chris about a lot of different things including his love of david lynch and uh you can check that out at patreon.com slash it's totally worth it. Yeah, for anybody that's not doing it, these guys have some great Patreon stuff that where they're just talking about things like just, you know, not even a guest, uh, no no dope like me, and they're talking about um, very interesting stuff. I would definitely recommend that for anybody. And I say this only because I just recently realized that I was a Patreon, <laughs> and I started <laughs> listening to this stuff. Yeah, there's there, there's a lot there. So there is, um, and it's very cool. Um, it's great, like really good stuff. So I commend you guys, and I give a sincere um, uh, endorsement of it because it surprised me the other week when I remembered that I was paying people money for this wonderful uh, uh, media. Awesome. Well, five dollars, five dollars gets you in, gets you all the archives and uh, the Mystic Crew, which Chris is a member of. That's uh also we're gonna have we we're doing monthly meetups yes monthly hangout with people like chris you get access to so come join us on that and uh we got exclusive t-shirts and vip experiences for those adepts of the ancient circle of strange realities check us out on patreon.com slash conspiranormal all right, guys, and uh, and as usual, Conspiracy Normal podcast on YouTube. Give us a five star review, like and subscribe, all that good stuff, guys. Until next time, we will be back on Conspiracy. please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.